Welcome to Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice as well as humanities research. Do doctors and patients speak the same language and how can we use narrative to bridge the evident gaps? These are the questions that animate the work. Mind reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life Project at Oxford University and the University of Birmingham, and expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland and the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health particularly. This podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we postponed due to COVID-19, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. So to begin this episode, Words to Live by Hearing the Stories of Dementia, from the Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. I'm joined by Clodagh Whelan, who's the Advocacy, Engagement and Participation Officer of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, supporting the work of the Irish Dementia Working Group. Clodagh has worked with older people for nearly 20 years and supported people living with dementia in housing, day services and long-term care. Clodagh has a primary degree in law and a postgraduate diploma in person-centred dementia care and social gerontology. She's currently undertaking a research master's to understand more about the human rights of people living with dementia. And Clodagh is going to interview Dr. Wendy Mitchell and Mr. Kevin Quaid to authors living with dementia. Dr. Wendy Mitchell is the author of Somebody I Used to Know, a memoir documenting the early signs of Alzheimer's disease, her diagnosis, and ultimately learning to live with the disease and find hope. Wendy is mum to Gemma and Sarah, a former NHS manager, a writer, as well as the book Wendy Writes a Regular Blog, and an active advocate for people living with Alzheimer's disease. In her book, Wendy says, I want to be heard. And we're delighted that she's joining us today so that we can listen. Wendy has received two honorary doctorates for her work from Bradford and Hull universities and is a champion of dementia research, in particular research led by people living with dementia. Mr. Kevin Quaid is the author of Louis Body Dementia, Survival and Me. Kevin wrote this book because he found a lack of information from the perspective of a person living with the condition and is now working on his second book. Kevin is a member of the Irish Dementia Working Group and vice chair of the European Working Group of People Living with Dementia. Kevin is married to Helena and is a dad and granddad, a keen sports fan and a baker. He's a very active member of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland Dementia Research Advisory Team and like Wendy, champions a person-led approach and is a PPI contributor on many studies. I'm going to begin by just reminding us what is dementia? There's a lot of confusion. So dementia is an umbrella term and it's the umbrella term for a range of conditions which cause damage and changes to the brain. Symptoms of dementia include memory loss, communication difficulties, hallucinations, the loss of the ability to form everyday tasks and sensory issues. And there are 64,000 people in Ireland living with dementia. We estimate that that's going to increase to 150,000 by 2045. So this isn't a niche issue. This is affecting our neighbors, our friends, our family members, and in the future could very possibly affect us. In fact, in 2015, the Alzheimer's Society in the UK published research that estimated that one in three children born that year would go on to develop dementia. The other thing that's sometimes not spoken about is that dementia is a human rights issue. And for too long, people living with dementia have been stigmatized, their voices haven't been heard, and we all really need to change that. So I'm really excited today to be joined by Wendy and Kevin, who've taken very firm steps to change that, both of them having written about living with dementia. So I'm going to come to you first, Wendy, and 
I'd like to understand why you decided to write your book. Why did you tell your story? Well, initially, I'd been asked many times to write a book by many publishers, but I knew I couldn't write one by myself because I turn the page and forget what I'd just written. Yes. So I needed someone with me. And when when my co-writer, Anna Wharton, contacted me via, via email out of the blue to ask, could I write a book with you that I wish I'd had when my father was alive, as he died of dementia, I knew then that the possibility was becoming a reality. But I needed to trust her. I needed to know that I could open my heart to her. And within two minutes of meeting her, I, I began to realise that my dream was coming true. I could write a book because we got on famously from the start. But the reason why I wanted to write a book was because I wanted to write for me. I, that's all my intention was. I never imagined in a million years that anyone else would want to read my story. Yes. I wanted to hold a book in my hand that was my story. And and you've gone on, Wendy, you know, to be a, a Sunday Times bestseller. And I know you said when we were preparing for this that that was just beyond your dreams. I, I'm interested in how you and Anna wrote the book together. I think you told me you did a lot of writing over WhatsApp. Oh, we did. WhatsApp came into its own <laughs> because I can't use the phone anymore. I find that too difficult. Yes. People get impatient at the other end and can't hear me thinking, can't see me thinking. So we had to find a way that worked. And she actually taught me how to use WhatsApp because I didn't know how to use WhatsApp at the time. Wow. And she would contact me each day via WhatsApp to say what we're going to write today. I would write whatever she'd asked of me, and then I would email it back to her. Mm. And we'd have WhatsApp conversations on what, what I needed to include, what I needed to expand, and all, all the probing that she was very good at. So emojis took on a whole new meaning for us. Because I never knew emojis existed before that time. I'm a huge fan of them. I find that fascinating because I think sometimes people who are interested in literature, be it writing or reading, you know, we can be dismissive of emojis. We, we can be quite disparaging of their use, but obviously they supported you to get your point across, which is really fascinating. Yes, it's their simplicity yes. that enables yes. me. And yes. I, could, I could put across to Anna immediately if I was unhappy if I was confused by the question just one emoji said it all <laughs> that's so interesting Wendy I'm going to ask Kevin now the same question Kevin you got your diagnosis and and we, you've shared with me that you hadn't written in the past so and now you're you're I think the phrase you used was you're gone stone mad for writing so 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 what made you stone mad for writing what began I suppose it was something I was actually thinking about last night. 
When the day Helena and myself sat in the neurologist's office and she said to me, you have Lewy body dementia, I had never heard of the word Lewy body and I was like a lot of people there, I thought dementia meant memory problems and I didn't have a memory problem. So fast forward the tape, the doctor wanted to see, the neurologist wanted to see me every four or five weeks and asked me would I keep notes on what my day-to-day and especially my nightlife was like because... Dementias are so different, and especially Louis bodies. Like Wendy and myself have so much in common, but our diseases are miles apart in symptoms. Yes. And it was when I was with one of the team, the neurological team one day, he said to me, my God, he said, these notes are so important to us. Would you ever consider writing a book? And with the support of a wonderful family, my kids, my wife, and especially... I dedicated my first book, Louis Body Dementia Survival of Me, to my cousin Teresa, who was at stage four cancer, and she was months from dying. She really encouraged me to write it. And I suppose the main reason behind it was the lack of information that Alina and myself were able to get. Yes. On Louis Warriors. The only thing we got actually was four, four A4 pages from, I think, maybe England. Mm-hmm. From my from from my neurologist, so uh, the Claire asked the question earlier: uh, Do doctors and patients speak the same language? And I just thought, what a wonderful question! Because I think they are beginning to. Because my neurologist relies a lot on me and my symptoms. So my first book was to get. I wanted people to get to know who I was, what happened to me through my life. Nothing exceptional detail, but that you you could frame a picture of who I was. Mm. Being diagnosed with Louis body dementia, how we coped with it as a family, in that we went through everything from literally power of attorney, my funeral, you name it, what was going to be it. Because I have kids in Australia, kids in Ireland, and rather than having the family meetings, they all now know what dad wants. And then yes. we, thought, we thought at the end of the book that it would be nice to see how it affected them. So my children, my stepchildren, a brother of mine, a friend of mine, and my wife all wrote what it was like for them. So everyone's voice is in it. But my second one that's due to be released later this year is going to be entitled I'm Kevin, Not Louis. And where the other book is a kind of, you know, a sad book, and it's tough, and this guy gets Louis by dementia. This is one of hope. It's one that if you get diagnosed early enough with a disease that's we're told is both progressive and incurable, that there is another life there and you can live sometimes actually a normal life. I'm going to come in there because I think that's a very interesting point. Having read both your books, a really common theme that both of you talk about is identity. And Wendy, there's a a phrase in your book, you say, I was faced with a choice to stay in the life I knew rather than the new one sketched out in the table in front of me. And that you tried on different hats. You wondered, could you be Wendy the baker because you started baking for your local homeless service? And I wonder, would you like to tell us a little bit about that, about how you found the new Wendy living with Alzheimer's disease in your book? Well, when I was diagnosed, I was left at rock bottom. I went into deep depression because 
No one told, no one gave me that hope. No one told me there was a life. You know, the clinical process is very negative because it focuses on what we can't do. Mm. And I soon realized, and it was seeing my daughter's faces, the effect I, my depression was having on them. It was seeing their faces that made me realize that the only person that was going to get me out of this was me. Because the phone didn't ring with support or the phone didn't ring with appointments. I was just discharged. So I knew I had to carve out a new life. Mm. I just didn't realise where that life was going to begin with. And I clung on to work for a long time because I wasn't ready to retire. Yes. I retired on my terms not when the NHS thought I should retire, which was right at the beginning. But then a new life opened up for me once I began to meet other people with dementia because I began to realise that, my goodness, she's been diagnosed for 10 years and look at her speaking on a stage. Look at Mm. the life she's leading. So they gave me hope. And I, I, sorry. No, I was just going to say, Wendy, that the hope shines through in your book, Mm. as does the humour. I laughed a lot reading it. You have a a lovely story about Billy the cat who was putting on weight and nobody could figure out why. And then you realised you were forgetting that you'd fed him and Mm. and you kept feeding him and Billy was expanding, you you know, and you have loads of loads of humor you call you were mentioning um other people living with dementia you call them your playmates which yeah which is a touch of the playboy and Hugh Hefner about it which really made me laugh um I'm going to come I suppose Kevin that's something I, I thought you and Wendy really have in common as well you both have a sense of humor and you're both looking for hope and how did you find the hope, Kevin? Well, I suppose like Wendy, when you're diagnosed with dementia, you pretty well need a sense of humour, don't you? Yeah. Um, listening to Wendy there talking, and it's only my second time uh, meeting her, but our ideas, are, she, Wendy, could, Wendy could speak for me. What Wendy has said is exactly, exactly the way I feel, and I gave up work. On my terms, I gave up driving on my terms. Louis Barry Dementia was not going to tell me when I couldn't drive anymore. Louis Barry Dementia was not going to tell me when I stopped driving anymore. I, pres- I, I suppose you could describe it in a way that when a person, God love us, that has cancer and they know they're going to lose their hair and they say, right, well, the cancer is not going to take my hair. I'm going to make the decision to take it off now. And that's Maybe it's unfair to make that comparison. I don't know. But I decided to take charge of my life. And like the writing, it just happened by pure accident. And I had I had a book launch and a local newspaper approached me and said, look, there's a platform here. Use it whenever you want to. It turned into writing one week. And I'm now writing from every week with, with a number of years. It's a focus, it's a hope, 
it's it's something I would never have dreamed of doing in a million years. And you know, I think being diagnosed with a disease like we have, and when the touchness is red, you find something new in yourself that you never thought was there. Because when I went to school, I hated to write an essay. And here I am now, a published author, about to, about to publish a second book. If you taught me that five years ago, I would have said there was something seriously wrong with you. Yes. And Wendy, I love to bake as well. And my one of my favourite things to do are Christmas cakes. But I have to bake so many of them. And you would assume that it's because we have such a large family. It's not. Myself or my wife and I, we adore fruitcake. So the first three are sample cakes. <laughs> Sample cakes. That's a great. That's a great phrase, Kevin. I have to say, I've worked with you for a couple of years now, and I've never received a sample cake. We're going to have to. We're going to have to do something about that. I. I think. I, I really enjoyed preparing with both of you for, for this chat because because of your your sense of humor and you do have so much in common, Wendy. I was struck by a phrase in your book. You said dementia doesn't have to be a full stop. It can be a comma. And, and I got that same sense for, for Kevin. And I'm wondering, because, because the Mind Reading podcast will be listened to, by hopefully, by a lot of clinicians, would you have advice for doctors when they're diagnosing you so that it doesn't feel like a full stop? I so wish that clinicians would turn around the diagnosis. When I was diagnosed, I was given a sad look a handshake and said, there's nothing we can do. No hope, no indication of what I might, life I might still have, just no hope. If only that neurologist had said to me, yes, the diagnosis is that of young onset dementia and not something anyone would wish to have, but think of it as a different way of living of a life of adapting. And no, there might not be anything I can do, but there's still so much you can still do, still so much life you can still live. How different my mindset would have been with those few words ringing in my ears, those words of hope instead of despair. That's really beautiful, Wendy. It's it's a really important distinction that of there might be might not be medical things the doctors can do but you can still live your life kevin would you have advice for for a uh, doctor i just absolutely love again what wendy has said and I, I it takes me back to the day we were diagnosed and when i was told that i had Lewy body dementia instead of like wendy said instead of it being um a devastating diagnosis, especially for younger onset, that if the doctor said to me, look, Kevin, it is a horrible disease, but why not look at it as an opportunity? Why not look at it as a time to do something you always wanted to do? Was there a passion in your life that you wanted to do? And instead of, as Wendy said, give up altogether and go home, Give us that opportunity or, or set the seed, set the seed in our head that will say, right, what, was, what, 
What was the thing I was wanting to do? Was it travel? Was it write? Was it read? Was it listen to music? Whatever it was, if a doctor would just go that one extra sentence and say, look, instead of looking at this as a life sentence, or looking at it for what it is, look at it for the opportunities that it may present. And in my case, and I've told you this before, Clara, I have had more wow moments, W-O-W, in my life since I was diagnosed than I had while I was living my so-called normal life. And one was um, when I was asked to be um, take part in research project. And the doctor there asked me, would I be co-lead? I would have been co-lead and nothing, I can assure you, had I still being a project manager or, or, or whatever. So like clinicians and neurologists and GPs and that, as Wendy said, just go that little one step further right, you're delivering devastating news. But have a boot there, boot. There is an opportunity. There is an organization like the ASI or Louis Body Society or whatever, whatever it would be. There are books there. There are people there that can, that can help. You're not the first one, you know? Yes. Just one sentence from me yes. that I think applies to both me and Kevin is never to give up on yourself. Because all those many people around you will do that for you. And this applies to anybody in any circumstance. But it really has applied to us. Something I'd like to add as well. Listen to listen to what Wendy said. Just listen to what Wendy said, because I am in a hundred percent agreement. We're in different countries. We have a different form of a disease. But that's what our message to you guys. Well, I, I think both of you have given definitely me food for thought. And I think actually that sense of of finding joy in, in the situation you currently find yourself in is advice for all of us now as we navigate life in, in COVID-19 and something we, we can remember. Um, I, I think we, we could talk to both of you all day, <laughs> but we're coming to the end of our session. And, and I, I was struck, Wendy, you asked a question of yourself in the book. You said, can I rely on the new me? And, and I think we've really got an answer to that today for both of you. We, we, we are, are so grateful to have the new you in conversation today. And thank you very much for your time.